Thanks for listening to KYUK. I'm Evan Erickson. This week on Field Notes, we're catching up with KYUK's senior reporter, Emily Schwing, who is in Chivac. She's traveling in communities hit hard by Typhoon Murbach a year ago to find out how residents are recovering from one of the most powerful storms to hit the state in the last five decades. Hey, Emily, how are things out on the coast? Hey, Evan, it's pretty good. Before I arrived here in Chivac, I spent a few days over in Hooper Bay, about 17 miles west. Tribal Administrator Jan Olson gave me a tour of the community, and he drove me around in his side-by-side off-road vehicle. He showed me a lot of damage that still remains after last year's storm. So you know, all oh, this was underwater, yeah. probably about two feet right here. So, and uh, you couldn't pass this no more, you know. Hooper Bay is split into these four main sections. The oldest part of the community, what people call downtown or old town, was cut off from the rest of the village after the storm brought a surge of high water that flooded the road. The storm surge came in so fast that people went to the nanning store across town to purchase stuff. And by the time they were coming home, you couldn't come across here no more. That's how high the water surge came. Yeah. There's these... uh, um, old, old logs there, that's yeah. how high the water was, all the way up there. Okay. Way. Oh, I see, and then these houses got new yeah, porches. Yeah, wind damage, and... new porches, yeah. new walls. The winds from the remnants of Typhoon Murbach exceeded 100 miles per hour, and they destroyed small Arctic entryways and porches on more than at least a dozen homes. Wind also ripped sheets of metal from roofs and, in some cases, plywood from exterior walls of homes. Most of the community's critical infrastructure, the wastewater treatment building, the sewage lagoon, and the garbage dump are all on that older side of town. The power plant, which is operated by the Alaska Village Electric Cooperative, is also on that side of Hooper Bay. There are about a dozen large fuel tanks that sit outside the plant. So during the storm, a surge of flood water came across the road that runs past the plant, and a few of those fuel tanks toppled over. Was there any fuel spilled from these tanks? The the reason why they toppled over is because they were empty. So, you know, the AVEC already made a mitigation plan. If there's another storm coming, whatever's empty, they're going to fill it, fill them at least uh, halfway, you know, so that won't happen again. Okay. So they they already planned for the next big storm, so they're already prepared. Now the tanks are upright, and they're surrounded by a three-foot-high wall of sandbags. The main sewer line also runs along the fence that encloses the power plant, and Olson says that too was underwater. This pipe on the outer, closer to the road, it was actually pushed up and over, so it was, luckily it didn't break this pipe right there. So it was pushed up and over from all the force of the And this water. is a sewer pipe, This is right? the water sewer pipe, yeah. So oh. we're, we're so lucky it didn't, you know, uh, get broken. Otherwise, you know, that, that would have been one of the things that they need, uh, would have needed to repair. Yeah. Uh, Emily, we're a year out from this storm, and we haven't heard much about what fall weather could bring this year. Um, what do you know about the long-term weather patterns that might have strong impacts on Alaska's West Coast in coming years or this year? So that's a really good question, Evan. And I actually emailed back and forth with a well-known climatologist here in Alaska, Rick Toman. He's a climate specialist with the Alaska Center for Climate Assessment and Policy. 
And he told me that long-term forecasting isn't all that skillful when the outlook extends beyond a week or so. But there is a silver lining. And what's that? Well, Evan, we're in an El Nino cycle right now. And Toman told me this time of year, and especially after October, storm tracks during El Nino years tend to pass through the Gulf of Alaska instead of further north up here in the Bering Sea. Um, so should we consider that to be good news? Yeah, but there's also a bit of a weather catch. Okay, what, what's the catch? Well, it's sea ice minimums and maximums. According to the National Snow and Ice Data Center, minimum summer sea ice extent in the Arctic has been at its absolute lowest in the satellite record every year for the last 17 years. And this year's winter maximum, so how much winter ice coverage there is over the pole and along Alaska's coast, that was at its fifth lowest in 45 years. So how, how can that actually affect fall time storms? Well, when there's more variability in sea ice, temperatures in the southern Chukchi and northern Bering Seas are also more likely to be unpredictable this time of year. As well, freeze-up is happening a lot later. So if the ground isn't frozen and there's a storm that hits the coast of Alaska, higher rates of erosion are a lot more likely. So that's kind of like what happened with Hooper Bay's dunes? Yes, exactly. So Hooper Bay is right on the coast, and it's protected by this row of sand dunes. But the ground wasn't frozen last year when Typhoon Murbach came through, and so a lot of those dunes were really severely damaged. Now, Rick Toman told me that back-to-back fall seasons with extreme coastal flooding and erosion are rare. But both Hooper Bay and Chivak have seen it before, back in 2005 and 2006. I asked around, and people do remember those floods— but they don't compare at all to the high water that Typhoon Murbach brought in last year. Joe Bell is an 82-year-old elder in Hooper Bay. He says people are seeing things his elders warned him about. Soon, the guts couldn't be reaching global warming effects, and there's going to be a lot of changes, a lot of ocean and land plants are going to be disappearing slowly. And then after that, if they're all gone, starvation will be popping up again. Do you think you're seeing some of that? Yeah, it's starting. Uh, some of the plants are go all over, all over the area. Some of the things that I grew up with and eating them, they're slowly disappearing. Well, that's a really fascinating insight, and so. Um, What is the solution going forward then, would you say, Emily? So that really is the million-dollar question, Evan. In fact, it's probably a multi-million-dollar question. Almost everyone I spoke with in Hooper Bay mentioned relocation. Tribal Administrator Jan Olson told me it's something that the tribe, the city, and the local corporation, Sea Lion, are trying to work together on. But they know it's a really long and very expensive road. You know, I, I never ever thought that, you know, I'd live to see it. And my kids are living to see it. Yeah. You know, my grandkids are living to see it. I have uh, grandkids too. So, you know, that's the reason why, you know, we know that we need to take action. It's already too late. It, it won't just happen overnight. You know, there's a lot of planning. There's got to be a lot of meetings, not just locally with uh, uh, 
other agencies like the state and the feds, you know. Wow, Emily, that uh, it sounds like communities like Hooper Bay have a lot to consider at this point. And thanks for giving us an idea of what's going on out there on the coast a year after Murbach here. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Evan. Emily Schwing is traveling across the YK Delta this month to find out more about how communities in the region have fared in the years since Typhoon Murbach. You've been listening to Field Notes. If you have thoughts, suggestions, or news tips, you can email us at news at kyuk.org. That's news at kyuk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Evan Erickson. Thank you.